I'm Chris Cutler. This is Probes number seven. Here's Li Kuan Nin, with just one large cymbal, resting and being moved about on, an upended bass drum. Percussion preparations are applied typically to drums, gongs and cymbals, rather than metallophones or wood, and they mostly consist of laying things on top of the heads, things that resonate, like bowls, bells, boxes, wood blocks and smaller drums, things that bounce and rattle, like snares, chains, pebbles and gourds, or things that mute and dampen, like cloths, pads, paper and heavy stones. And, of course, things that do all three. Back at the border now. Perhaps we should think of this as a treatment rather than a preparation. This is an extract from John Cage's Construction in Metal No. 1, in which gongs and tam-tams are struck and then lowered into bowls of water to shift their pitches.
Finally, this is from Monsk by the Austrian composer Hans-Joachim Hesbos. It's for a prepared mobile timpano. I've been unable to get hold of the score, so I'm not sure exactly what's happening, but I think that there are, at least, ribbed metal rods and battery-operated mixers involved. There are not many ways to prepare a voice, discounting the smoking of a million cigarettes or singing Ruby Valley style through a megaphone or into a resonating drum or, as we can hear in this extract from George Crumb's Ancient Voices of Children, a piano with the loud pedal depressed. But there is this impressively political work, much played in the 1960s, but perhaps because it's too close to home, seldom played today. It's Salvatore Materano's LGA. Written between 1967 and 68, it's a multimedia work for film, tape and narrator. The narrator, in a gas mask, attempts to recite Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, hence the title, while helium is piped into the mask. Government, eat all government, eat all of the people. By the people. 
more of the people. Show them not to carry from the earth. That these dead die in vain government when honored dead results cause devotion. Money. Turtle news, dead with freedom, people, suck the liquor. The method was also used by the British composer David Bedford for the finale of his 1977 children's mini-oratorio, The Song of the White Horse. Helium gas is to be inhaled, it says in the score, to enable the singers to reach the scarily high pitches. Preparations are still fairly exceptional. While extended techniques, to which we now turn, have in many cases entered the mainstream vocabulary of music. So let's look briefly at the investigation, recovery or invention of extended performance techniques. The first thing to say is that some, in fact, for many instruments, quite a lot, of today's so-called extended techniques have been known and selectively used for centuries, mostly for expressive or comic effect. But as pitch domination receded and the focus on sound and timbre gained ground, so unconventional techniques began to migrate from the periphery to the centre of much musical thinking. Some techniques were rediscovered, others were newly invented. And as timbre became a matter of substance, as opposed to a matter merely of interpretation, so too the relation between performers and the generative work of composition changed shifting at the cutting edges, away from execution and towards origination. 
This change moved in lockstep with the powerful re-emergence of improvisation as a self-sufficient musical activity, which is logical. When it comes down to it, only performers have the necessary interactive and symbiotic access to the physical properties and idiosyncratic peculiarities of their instruments. For a composer, an instrument is part of a puzzle. For a performer, it's an expressive device, and all the sounds it can make are of a piece. Looked at this way, the idea of extended technique is meaningless. It's just a technique. But from the position of a 19th century composer, tied to a tonal world that is mediated in absentia by writing, a world, what's more, in which the central fact and purpose of an instrument is to reproduce calculated pitches, anything else it can do might be interesting, but it falls outside its proper function. I'm sure Duke Ellington's most famous trombonist, Tricky Sam, wasn't thinking about extended techniques when he sang into his horn and waved a sink plunger in front of it. He was just thinking, this sounds good. So, although I use the term extended techniques in the programmes that follow, I do so because it's an accepted term, and not because I accept the old tonal bias that lies behind it. and early 20th centuries, composers like Berlioz and Ravel pursued greater exploration of timbre through the close control of orchestral colour, 
because this was an obvious route to take in a context that was defined by pitch. But pitch thinking is blind, inevitably, to sounds that are understood as being sufficient unto themselves. Indeed, what we might call pure sounds, or sounds just being sounds, most typically emerge from empirical experiments pursued beyond the constraints of do-re-mi. And that's why, in the first half of the 20th century, the grail of distinctive and novel approaches to sound generation was pursued most freely and most comprehensively, not by composers by way of scores, but by performers and improvisers who were working in the more empirical worlds of popular music and sound recording, because it was there that the qualities of novelty and individuality were most highly valued. Critical mass was attained between the late 1950s and early 1960s, when very quickly, and in every field, probes escalated into a mainstream trend. Music concrete and electronic music introduced radical new sonorities and unorthodox aesthetics. New developments in hi-fi and stereo reproduction gave birth to extreme bachelor pad exotica while the more experimental fringes of free jazz, contemporary art music and recorded pop drove one another forward by example, in a climate that was saturated by the promiscuous accessibility of almost every known form of music, ancient and modern, ethnic and urban, on cheap, universally accessible gramophone records. This unprecedented surge in musical experimentation coincided exactly with the accession of sound recording to the position of a universal reference point for musical culture, the binding forum in which to learn, borrow, adapt and stake one's claim. Think of it this way, until 150 years ago, music only existed where and when it was performed. Either you were there or you weren't, you heard it or you didn't. That simple fact imposed quite narrow limits on any individual's understanding of what music was or even what it might be. 
All you knew was what came from your neighbourhood or passed through it. If you were musically literate, you could also know what had been written down. But actual sound, actual musical experience, was rare and fleeting. To experience more than a few hours of music in a week would be exceptional, and very little of what you did hear would be new. And then along came sound recording, a shocking, unprecedented memory system that loaded every performance into an eternal present. Add to that the postal service, the radio and the world wide web and suddenly everything was in your neighbourhood and anything could form an active part of your musical education. Electric consciousness and universal orality, the new existential conditions that Marshall McLuhan had observed and theorised in the early 1960s, perfectly describes the imaginary solidity of the universe of recorded sound. There was no need to be there anymore because there was everywhere. There would come to you. The realisation of this vast tectonic shift caused a profound crisis of continuity, since once one could experience and learn from anyone, anywhere in the world, whether dead or alive, then the norm of contiguous community, with its roots in contact and location, inevitably begins to fracture and disappear. And when you can adopt as your mentors any personalised accumulation of otherwise unconnected and incompatible influences, a bit of opera here, some Amazonian tribal ritual there, the big bopper, the modern jazz quartet, African pop, Anton Weben, all mixed and stirred together, then your neighbours are no longer your peers. And in this environment, inevitably, formerly irreconcilable aesthetic differences begin gradually to break down and what were once rigid genre boundaries start to blur and converge. Community and presence give way to universality and absence. Who knew how to deal with this? But in the 60s, it was just exhilarating, and the probes ran riot. Amongst other things, the mashup that became European free improvisation grew out of this free-for-all. First appearing on the fringes of jazz, but soon taking in participants from rock bands and conservatories. Free improvisation was a turbo engine for the generation of new preparations and extended techniques. Now, maestro, if you please.
Clusters are not complicated. They come naturally to the piano. To form a cluster, you simply have to press down a larger or smaller block of adjacent keys. You can use a fist or a palm or a forearm or, in the case of Charles Ives' Concord Sonata, a short plank. A cat can play a cluster. The breakthrough was more in the thinking than the playing because in the early 20th century, a cluster was just a noise. It was something to be instinctively avoided. If one minor second is a discord, then a whole stack of minor seconds is, well, it's something too horrible to contemplate. So clusters were taboo, with a few very rare exceptions, mostly dramaturgical exceptions, since they typically involved onomatopoeic gestures celebrating famous battles or seriously inclement weather. As a side note, here's a wonderful example of accumulated dissonance from 1673. This is Heinrich Bieber's Battaglia Adieci in D major. By the late 19th century, the occasional, more playful cluster started turning up in jazz. There's a cylinder recorded in 1899, for instance, on which Jelly Roll Morton describes his elbow technique and demonstrates it on a version of Tiger Rag. Not more than a novelty effect at the time, like so many extended techniques before they moved into the light, but widely heard. And of course Charles Ives had flown some early probes in this direction, in works like Over the Pavements and the Concord Sonata. But although both works were written in the early years of the 20th century, neither was performed until decades later, and Ives was constantly revising them, so an accurate date can't be given. Still, there's no shortage of reasons to listen to this timely work, most of which certainly was written in 1906. This is Charles Ives' Over the Pavements for Piano and Small Ensemble.
Whatever almost all the reference books say, it was actually the composer and virtuoso pianist Leo Ornstein who began substantially to probe the possibilities of the cluster, and indeed who quickly became a celebrity for doing so. Here's an extract from his 1913 composition, Dance Sauvage. later the young Henry Cowell publicly took up the cause. It was he who named the technique and defined it, and it was he who theorised its importance. And certainly it was his championing of tone clusters that proved critical, not only to the piano, but to the language of contemporary music as a whole. Here's a bit of Cowell's Tiger. Today, clusters are part of the common keyboard vocabulary, 
from Thelonious Monk and Cecil Taylor to Karlheinz Stockhausen, who even had special gloves made so that he could play cluster glissandi. And piling up stacks of minor seconds on any instruments is now an uncontroversial commonplace. probed other piano possibilities too. Here's his 1923 composition, Aeolian Piano, in which one hand silently depresses the keys while the other works directly on the strings. And this is the jazz pianist Keith Jarrett playing directly on the strings in a very similar way some 35 years later. It's from Art Blakey's Recuerdo from the album Buttercorn Lady Live at the Lighthouse recorded in 1966. Thank you. 
The American maverick, George Crumb, spent a lifetime probing and inventing unconventional techniques across a whole range of instruments, not willfully, but in the service of an elusive, emotive, even metaphysical music. In this piece, Gnomic Variations, the pianist also works inside as well as outside the instrument. Although it sounds as if the piano has been prepared, all the alterations in timbre are in fact controlled through a highly skilled combination of conventional keying combined with plucking, strumming or damping the piano strings directly with the hand. This is also piano music. To make it, ten people have to stand around a single concert grand drawing fishing line through the strings, and some may use short, horsehair-covered sticks. These techniques, which Stephen Scott says he first saw used in Rhapsodies by the composer C. Curtis Smith, which was premiered in 1972, were the jumping-off point for Scott's own bowed piano ensemble, which went on to extend and refine those techniques and to introduce new ones. 
In passing, it's curious that neither Curtis Smith nor Stephen Scott seem to have been aware that the Romanian composer Horatio Radulescu had already pioneered these techniques very publicly at least a decade earlier. This is Rainbows by Stephen Scott. Here's Scott's ensemble again, in 1995 now, mixing bowing with various other inside piano techniques. It is hard to believe that this is being made on one piano in real time.
Extreme speed and manual independence, amounting to an extended technique, is the key to what the Canadian pianist Lubomir Melik calls continuous music. Something of a one-man band in every sense, Melnik is not really part of any recognised musical community, but has positioned himself as a kind of spiritual warrior. His website makes much of the fact that he's the fastest pianist in the world, sustaining speeds of over 19.5 notes a second in each hand. What he does, and it is impressive, is to play extremely fast, building interfering waves of sounds, overtones and shifting harmonies. This is from his Lund St. Petri Symphony for solo piano. George Crumb's approach is onomatopoeic, or at least figurative and programmatic. Helmut Lachenmann is austere, abstract, and somewhat theatrical. Lachenmann finds ways to coax the most unexpected and unfamiliar sounds from the most familiar instruments. It's fair to say that almost every technique he uses is an extended technique of some sort, some of them impressively exotic. Listening to his work on record, it can sometimes be quite difficult to identify the source, which accords with his own description of his work as music concrete instrumentale, the sounds being so consciously alienated from the instruments as we know them. In this piano piece, Guero, he sounds only the keys, very carefully, so as never actually to activate the strings.
And now, without touching the keys or the strings, here's John Cage's 1942 setting of James Joyce's Wonderful Widow of 18 Springs. In the Western Orchestra, the piano belongs officially to the percussion section, and here Cage uses percussively only the shell of the instrument to accompany the pianist's singing. Exactly how and where the piano is to be hit is, of course, carefully specified. This is Jenny Q. Chai. So we arrive, inevitably, at a music in which the piano is not touched at all. This is Holding Pattern, commissioned by Sarah Cayo in 2000 from the composer Maggie Payne. Three ebos are used to set the strings in motion. The ebo is a small, battery-powered device. It was invented by Greg Heat in 1969 to produce long, level tones from a steel string electric guitar. Held very close to, but not actually touching the string, it sets up a magnetic feedback loop which keeps the string in motion and therefore sounding. This is an acoustic composition with just the normal grand piano and no electronics.
Taking a guitar accessory to the piano is imaginative. And yet, 90 years earlier, when the electromagnetic principle behind the Ebo was first musically employed, it was used precisely to modify the timbre of a piano. This was the principle, as you will recall, behind the choralcello, an instrument millions of dollars in the making and now remembered only by a handful of musical historians. Perhaps, if there's a leitmotif in this group of programmes, it is how easily we forget and how often we therefore climb the same hills over and over again. I'll end this chapter with Philip Corner's Piano Activities because it stands on the threshold between a musical probe and what we might call a post-musical provocation, or, to be more generous, a meta-art interrogation. With this piece, we leave the realm of music altogether and start looking backwards rather than forwards. Again, John Cage takes a leading role. Cage made his own critical decision in 1951 when he abandoned intentional composition in favour of chance procedures and thereby moved, in my opinion, away from the world of music and into some other aesthetic realm for which we don't yet have a name. He taught these revolutionary principles in his experimental composition classes at the New School for Social Research in New York, a course that he ran between 1957 and 1959. I think it's fair to say that the Fluxus movement more or less emerged out of a confluence of this class and a sudden renewal of interest in the innovations of early 20th century Dada. The composer Philip Corner, who before becoming a founder member of Fluxus had studied with Otto Luening, Henry Cowell and Olivier Messiaen, wrote piano activities in 1962 for a series of European Fluxus events. The score, which consists of just a few sentences, calls for a group of people to play, pluck, tap, scratch, rub and drop objects onto a piano, as well as to drag various objects across it and, I quote, to act in any way on its underside. These instructions led notoriously at the 1962 Wiesbaden Festival to the complete destruction of the instrument. Be not afraid. In the next programme, we'll be looking at ways to coax unusual sounds out of strings. I'm Chris Cutler. This has been probes.